Hello and welcome to the Animation Industry Podcast. My name is Terry and I didn't post an episode last week um, because after five years, I finally reached a point in my animation career where I wanted to avoid burnout and something had to give and unfortunately it ended up being this podcast, which uh, I'm a little disappointed in because I post every week, but um, I also have to take care of myself, I guess. (laughs) Anyways, if you want to support me continuing this podcast, I have set up a Patreon, which you can check out in the description of this chat. So please consider doing that. Thanks. Now this week, I have an extra special guest who is here to give a little bit of a history lesson behind Disney's unionization. He is a New York-based writer, artist, and current animation history professor at the Rhode Island School of Design, and his name is Jake Friedman, and he's lately added published novelist to his resume. In fact, he's here to share all the research he did that went into his latest novel, The Disney Revolt, which covers the history of Walt Disney and Art Babbitt as they headed into their big labor war. It's actually quite an interesting chat as he shares how he befriended Art Babbitt's wife and ended up getting exclusive access to the animator's personal work, diary, files, and pretty much everything uh, that he could have wanted in compiling this book. Also, if you're interested in reading the book for yourself, you can get a 25% discount from chicagoreviewpress.com using the code DISNEY25. And I've included a link to that in the description of this chat as well. So please go check it out. And now without further ado, let's jump in. Hello, Jake. Thanks for coming on the chat. How are you doing? Hey, Terry. I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. How are you? Yeah, I'm I'm good. Thanks. I'm excited to chat about this wonderful, very interesting piece of animation history that you've written about called the Disney Revolt. Um, maybe you could just start off by giving a brief overview. Like imagine we're in an elevator and uh, I'm getting off in two stops and you want to tell me about this book. <laughs> it's about the golden age of Disney animation, walking you through it as the artists learning about the one artist who uh, was the most innovative artist of all of Walt's artists and what he did that caused his name to kind of be erased from Disney history for a long time, namely leading a labor strike in 1941 during the making of Bambi and Dumbo. Uh, Do you want to tell people who that is (laughs) or do we leave that as a cliffhanger? His name is Art Babbitt. I think everybody knows. (laughs) Art Babbitt. He is he is listed as as a as a supervising animator, but in my research I found just how important he was to Disney history. Well, like, like what's more important than an animation supervisor for, for the films at the time? Well, there were lots of animation supervisors. The way Disney films uh made movies, well, the studio cast animators the way you cast lead actors. You're going to play this character. You're going to play that character. Art Babbitt was one of those lead animators who was cast as the Wicked Queen in Snow White, as Geppetto in Pinocchio, um, etc. So he was one of those, which already puts him in a very small cohort of the Disney Golden Age masterpieces. And when we say Golden Age, that's from like 1933 to 1942, the films that were in production up to the strike which was in 1941. So Three Little Pigs is kind of like the beginning of the golden age. And then the films, Snow White, Pinocchio, Fantasia, Dumbo, Bambi. Each of these is incredibly unique, stands out on its own, right? There's no set style. Each one is very different. You have a a princess movie, a boy movie in Pinocchio, a concert feature, trippy pastiche film, in Fantasia, you have this like modern 20th century short form cartoonish film with a lead character who doesn't even speak a single word in Dumbo, right. 65 minutes long, like a fable. Then you have Bambi, which is a fuzzy animal movie that's done in a as close to photorealistic as they could. Like if you skip past the, the baby parts where all the animals are babies and you go into the grown deer and all the other grown-up animals, you're like, wow, they animated these deer like, like they could get inside a, a grown deer's mind. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's a lot to uncover there. I'm wondering, you know, obviously I want to chat a lot about this book and and uh, why you decided to write it. Um, but like, 
So you come from animation yourself. You were working uh, on quite a few TV shows and movies and things like that. Uh, and then you decided to get into teaching animation history. You made the jump out of the industry and into teaching, I guess. And then you decided to write this book. Can you tell me a little bit, you know, what what was that? What inspired your journey to get into animation and then kind of leave and then teach and then write about history? I would love to. And <laughs> I would love to. And before that, I'm going to finish your previous question and tell you why Art Babbitt kicks kicks butt. Okay. 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 To you. Supervising animator. He's also uh, um, the basically the originator of one of the core characters, Goofy. He was the guy who lifted Goofy up and made him into a, like an actual personality. And that puts him in a very even smaller group of, of animators. And then in addition to that, we're talking before the nine old men joined Disney. Before that, he was the guy to bring art study into the studio, setting figures and to study action analysis. He brought those art studies in. He brought in using live action reference, shooting people for reference with his uh, film camera, like movement specialists, dancers and gymnasts and baton twirlers and things like that. So he could get that into his characters. He was the person who brought method acting into his characters and writing a character analysis of Goofy. And that was the key to unlocking personality animation, which. Walt had been striving to do it, but couldn't figure out the recipe and Babbitt brought it to the studio. So that makes Babbitt the most unique and influential animator that Walt had. And it's too that he wasn't given that credit. And the reason why is because he led such a bitter labor strike that lasted nine whole weeks during the summer of 41. And that kind of like changed the studio forever and hurt Walt's feelings, made him felt abandoned by the people that he trusted the most the people that he invested all this time and energy in during a time that was extremely stressful for him when the war in Europe was hurting his, his revenue so badly, he thought he was going to go under. So that's, that's Art Babbitt and Walt Disney, two people who were aligned in their ideals like this enmeshed and then butting heads and clashing yeah. at the, at the form of this labor union. Gosh, I don't even, I have so many questions. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Why don't we just keep going with the flow? How did you, uh, you know, Art Babbitt is very infamous for being such an amazing animator. And, you know, I've heard a lot of these things from animation history at Sheridan College when I went there. How did you, you know, research and uncover more of the story behind, uh, you know, the revolts and Art, ba Art Babbitt's contribution and, and Disney's upbringing and all this stuff, uh, you know, when some of, you know, like you said, it was erased from Disney history. Um, I had read about Babbitt in books about animation history that were not written or published by by Disney. Yeah, because we're talking about the '90s, right? Um, and there were some great behind-the-scenes books about animation in the '90s. Uh, the Illusion of Life is a great one by Frank and Ali, but there's no mention of the strike in that. Um, and then there are a couple books by Seamus Culhane that that he that he published in the '80s, Talking Animals and Other People, and Animation from Script to Screen. So animation, uh, like the background of animation was sort of revealed to me there. Those two books were not Disney books. He just kind of like wrote his memoirs and kind of a how-to book on animation. Um, so uh, getting the scoop of what, and oh, and Jack Kinney wrote a book called Walt Disney and Assorted Other Characters. Uh, and um, Bill Pete wrote an autobiography for children just his story about being an artist and it's a children's book. So these were windows into life as a Disney artist during that time for me anyway. And so um, I knew there was a lot more and I, and I, and I don't know how I got the idea that like, that, that there was more to be told. I probably didn't think there was more to be told back in the nineties about, about the strike of 41. It wasn't until I came back to my alma mater, which was NYU. And my animation history professor, John Colhane, told me that I would be writing the book about Art Babbitt and the strike. And uh, he knew that I loved history, Disney history and animation history. And he just assigned this to me. He said, you're going to write this book. Uh, and he got me in touch with Art Babbitt's widow. And oh, wow. Yeah, she was she was in her early 80s at the time, I think, or mid 80s. And after it like I called her up, but I didn't really have the nerve to fly out there. I live in New York. She and all this other stuff is in 
Burbank or Los Angeles, California. And so it took me a year to finally fly out there. So you called her up and said, hi, I'm somebody you've never heard of before. My professor told me to write a book on your your late husband. Well, she wanted the book written. She was afraid that her late husband's history would be erased. And she she wanted the legacy to live on. So she knew John Culhane. John, and I, I adored John Culhane. I went to NYU partially because of John Culhane. He wrote the book Aladdin, The Making of an Animated Series, which when it came out and I was like 12, I was like, ah, this is... This is treasure. This is like water in the desert for me, the behind the scenes of the Disney studios. Yeah. Um, and so I adored his class so much that like I took it my first semester at NYU. And then the next year I just sat in. I just made time to sit in his class and I attended every class the second year and the third year. You weren't like, even taking his class. You were just sitting in for three years? For three years. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Yeah. John Culhane was great. Like it was hard to get any grade other than an A for his class. He was just like so full of life. He was vivacious. He was like a big kid who was like a senior citizen. He was like so full of whimsy and and zest for the world and just like looking through the eyes of of a child every day. He like I just loved that. He taught he taught me how to bring joy into what I do. Wow. And so I just wanted to be around that. And so I didn't realize how much that meant to him. I thought this was just a one-way thing. Like I'm getting this from him. I can't possibly be giving him anything from me to him. I'm sure he gets this all the time. Well, I came back as a speaker and he gave me this assignment. And, and when I called Barbara, Art Babbitt's widow, she said, like she said that John had talked to her about me and she was expecting to hear from me. And when I finally flew out to her, that started a wonderful and warm friendship. And she became sort of like my West Coast grandma. She called me. Oh, wow. She called herself my showbiz granny. Showbiz granny. I, yes, she was my showbiz granny because she used to be a dancer and an actress. She's She was on like the Dick Van Dyke show and she was in an episode of The Twilight Zone. And she had danced on a variety show for like Frank Sinatra and and. uh she had a long history of being in showbiz, um, but she wanted to make sure that Art Babbitt's legacy was insured. And so for years, 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 I, I would travel to her and she saved everything that he had done and saved over the wow. years. And she had like a giant, kind of the size of a garage, but there were no cars in it. And it was, she called it a cubby hole, but it was just like a giant room, um, kind of like a, what you might imagine like a basement to be with boxes and and drawers and filing cabinets and all of the things of his life were in there like his termination letter from disney's photos from new york in 1920s um home movies that he shot in the 30s while at disney and not at disney like hanging out with other disney animators um audio interviews that he had done just i'm holding his like disney ID in my hand and his like passports from when he traveled during his vacation while he was at Disney. Like I, I got a, his diary. Um, I, I felt like I got a chance to know that man after 10, 11 years. Wow. Of, what did it, what did it feel like to just be like, I have this exclusive, uh, access to one of the greatest, you know, animators of our time. Well, ever i guess because animation isn't that old yeah <laughs> and and it wasn't just access it was literally everything you could have ever wanted i i felt like there's no way i can't be granted a publishing contract with this there's no way and boy was i wrong <laughs> but wait boy, have you ever have you ever published anything before have you ever written before your professor was just like you're gonna write this book i have faith in you and you're like i've never written an article in my life like you know, I think at that point I'd written a couple articles for Animation Magazine. My first article was published in, I think, 2006 for Animation Magazine. And I just I just wanted to keep writing. Uh, wow. if there are any so, listeners... so you'd published a couple articles, which are only, you know, a couple hundred words long, I guess. Were uh, you intimidated to take on a book or you just knew you could do it? A book? I think I knew I could do it. An article would be around between, I guess, 450 and 2000 words long. Okay. Um, 
which comes, it's shorter than you think. Like 2000 words on a Microsoft Word document comes out to maybe like three pages. Yeah. The hardest part is editing, to be honest with you, because it, most of it is interviews. You're interviewing someone about the show that they work on or the DVD that's coming out or a book that they wrote. So most of it's just quotes. You just have to know what questions to ask them and how to frame that into like a story that's kind of fun to read. Huh. And and I, I I just loved writing. I always loved writing. And I wanted to, I more than that, I loved being a fanboy. I loved interviewing people and giving like having people give me the time of day. I, the only way to do that was to be a reporter. So if that started with being a writer for my local newsletter called Asifa, Asifa East. There's Asifa Hollywood, which gives out the Annie Award every year. So Asifa, it started in France. It's all over the world. So I was writing articles for Asifa East, just like local animation heroes like Bill Plimpton or... Um, the 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 people maybe like my my producer of the show that I was working on at the time it was Little Einstein's show so I interviewed Chris Greengrove the producer of that show or um, uh, I interviewed just like people within the circle it was a great way to network and a great way to sort of like folk, like get my writing chops done um, I think in college I was writing stuff too but what I really wanted to write about was animation and this was a great output for that. So I was just doing a lot of that. And for the newsletter, it was for free. It was pro bono volunteer work. Everyone's doing it for free. So, but I had a, I had a, um, what do you call it? Like a, a, a sample to show Animation Magazine when they said, show me you can write. I had like a dozen or so samples, writing samples. They said, okay, pitch us some ideas. I was like, oh, I wasn't prepared for that. So like off the top of my head, I threw like four ideas at them. And uh, uh, Ramin said, okay, write about this one. And so I wrote an article about that. And that was like a two page article. And that started like a long relationship writing for animation magazine that lasted for several years. Nice. So, uh, so you already knew you could write and then you had unlimited access to all the information you could ever dream of. And then you said it was really tough to get a publisher involved. Yeah. Um, after about maybe like a four or yeah, about four years. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I wasn't quite sure what the book was going to look like. Like I had all this stuff um, and I had a lot of research and to help me organize my research, I started a blog called Babbitt blog. And, um, and I wrote an, an article for animation world network and for your friend Dan Sarto called um, uh, something like the top of his class about how Art Babbitt basically invented animation education. He was like the first real animation teacher in three different ways, in three different times, in the 40s, in the, in the 50s slash 60s, and into the 70s with the new generation who were building the Renaissance, the animation Renaissance, and how he was responsible for all of these. Um, but writing these like blog posts was a way for me to organize my research. So uh, I was, um, I hope you have editing capabilities in this because I kind of lost track of my thought. <laughs> That's all right. I was asking you, how did you end up getting a publisher um, when you know you had unlimited access and you said it was it was hard? Oh, okay. So once I shit, thank you. So once I shaped this up, uh, I kind of cold called a bunch of agents like 120 agents wow just like agents who had worked with other animation books um yeah or like nonfiction or pop culture or things like that and cold call i had a list of of email addresses and i got this list from something called the book expo of america which is okay. basically comic-con for publishing it was in in uh here in new york um the BEA book. So you already you already had a full draft of the book in this case. Oh no, 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 no. Not even close. Not so how even... were you expecting to get a publisher deal if you didn't have a you you just had that the idea? Well, first I I had a pitch letter. Yeah. And that's how you get uh agents interested. And and then once you get agents interested, they're like, send me a proposal. And then a proposal is basically maybe like a depends how long, but usually around 10 pages which includes a chapter summary. So each 
chapter gets maybe like a short paragraph of what it's going to look yeah. like. So that's really all you need. And you need to explain why there's a market for it and why you're the person to write it and compare some other topical books that have done well and sold. The publisher just wants to make money. They don't, yeah, they don't care about anything else. Well, it's a business, you know, like you can't blame them. That's how commerce works. But I want to perpetuate a man's legacy. The publisher wants to stay in business and not go broke. Um, so hopefully we can both fulfill our dreams here. So I got an agent um, and I worked with that agent. And after maybe like five years, I found that, that I was making no progress with this agent. I kind of like. Wait, so you're four years into already having access to unlimited knowledge and then yeah. five more. So we're nine years later now. Yeah. Oh yeah. We're God. nine years later. And, and, uh, and she's shopping it around. She's like, do you want to go for like a uh, university press? I'm like, no. I do not want to go for a, a university press. Um, and she's sending me back these answers from all of her contacts in publishing. And all the answers are pretty much the same. They're like, this is an important story, but no one's going to buy it because like, no one's going to buy the book because the name isn't recognizable. Right. At the time it was a biography of Art Babbitt, kind of like a, yeah. like, a whole life story of him, wound to tomb thing. And um, so after five years of working with her, I I had to change gears entirely. Um, I I found myself kind of not really happy with what she was doing, and like I and and I took it upon myself to shift gears a little bit and make the scope of the book about something different. You know, like I basically people weren't weren't biting. I had to shift. I had to pivot. Yeah. And that's an important skill, I think. You can't fall so in love with what you're working on that you're afraid to pivot. Like, it's not about me. It's not about my ego. And people should like this as it is. I'm not going to change it for anyone. No, like people aren't going to take it. I, I need to pivot. And so I did. So so I I terminated relationships with that agent. I shifted gears and made it not about Art Babbitt's life, but about the strike itself and art and Walt hmm. and abandoned some chapters and started some new chapters. Um, and just like wrote like the first, like few chapters about Walt Disney from scratch then, because I realized that I need to explain how, like if the story is about the strike, how did Walt become who he is? How, how did art Babbitt become who he is? How did they work both together so harmoniously and create some of the most magnificent pieces of art in the 20th century with those short cartoons and feature animated films? And then, and that's just the first half. And then the second half is how did, how did it start going downhill? Hmm. So the things that led up to butting heads and then finally the strike, which did not happen out of thin air, like nothing happens in a vacuum. Everything is kind of the result of something else. So, this halcyon time, this golden time was leading up to Snow White. It was beautiful. Everyone's on the same ship, sink or swim. If, we, if we're in it, we're in it together. We're all going to succeed together. We will split profits as Walt Disney had promised. And it was successful. And that's kind of where the golden age, not the gold, the happy time kind of ended for a lot of people because they felt that after that, Walt and Roy and, and their vice president saw this as a great way to make money and we're not going to profit share the way we promised and we're going to maintain as much control as we can this is no longer a small time mom and pop shop we're going to we're going to run this like like a business and uh that sort of was the beginning of ill will with some of the animation staff yeah wow um it's been interesting just hearing you talk about the shift of this story that you were going to tell. I'm just wondering, as a follow-up to that, do you feel satisfied with where it ended up as a focus on the, you know, the the strike and the differences between Walton Babbitt versus like the biography of just Babbitt? Yeah, I do. Cause I like there's like Babbitt is such a fascinating character. I think like he was in the Marines during World War II. That's a that's an interesting story, but I didn't feel prepared to write that story. Um, I wanted to write the, 
like in, in my gut, I wanted to write the labor strike story. Yeah. My parents were part of a labor strike when they were very young, like in their early 20s. They were part of the Philadelphia teacher strike in 1973, way before I was even uh, a twinkle in their eye. And knowledge of the strike that they were on and the presence of a teacher's union in their lives, that was just kind of common knowledge for me growing up. Um, so I wanted to write a book that was pro-union and also pro-Disney. Yeah. Like, there's no villain. If you're looking for Walt or Art Babbitt to be a villain, they're like they're not. <laughs> they're just following their convictions, and they're very similar in this way. They're a hundred percent passionate and unswayable in what they believe in, as far as labor unions. And unfortunately, that just led to bitterness. They started out so aligned. And I kind of see a kind of a parallel today how people can be polarized into echo chambers, just vilifying the other side when really there is a common ground if only you can find it. Yeah. How did you feel, you know, having so much experience in the animation industry as an artist before and then becoming a teacher and seeing, you know, students come and go and unions, et cetera, and then writing about this after getting all this access to information? How did it how does this affect you personally? Um, well, you know, teaching animation history, my job is to teach animation history, not to, not to sway young minds politically. Like I, I really have to check myself, but I do talk about the strike a little bit. I mentioned the strike. I show some photos. I show some clips of those old films just to show that this, this is a business. Like we're not just unicorns and fairy dust here. Like people are going to work. This is, this is work just like making garments is work or making automobiles is work both of which are industries that had unions and that went on strike um this is work and when you go out into the world you're going to work you will have a paycheck and you will want to make money that will afford you uh food shelter and the comforts of life um and you want to be treated fairly there's the, like a lot of the, the things that came up in the strike research from 1941 was the idea that the they thought the the strikers thought that they were expected to work for for um, art for art's sake, you know, create art for its own sake. Mm. Um, that that the studio expected them to to do it for the love of the craft and and that the payment was just kind of ancillary. Um, but, um, that was part of, like, I kind of write about that in the book. Like, it's hard to understand why animation artists were the last to become unionized. You have the Screen Actors Guild. We've all heard of the Screen Actors Guild. And there's the Screen Writers Guild and Screen Directors Guild, like all these crafts, including office workers and camera operators and projectionists and background painters, like every craft in Hollywood had at least one, usually two or three unions who represented them back in that time. Why didn't the animators have one? So finally, studio by studio, the animators were getting their unions. MGM, Warner Brothers, one, like one by one. Disney was the last studio to not have an animation artist's union, um, which was the last union for craft workers in Hollywood. And it's hard to explain like, like why and i think what's happening now is that people are understanding people the public is understanding that you might create something that appears to be you know pixie dust and magic but it's work people are are at their desk doing work today it's in a cubicle at a screen 80 years ago it was at an animation table with um with a light disc that's glaring up at you yeah. Maybe giving you eye strain, you know? So um I still feel like people don't understand how animation is made. Yeah. There's I'll have that. random, I'll be coming home from a studio and the Uber driver will be like, you know, where are you coming from? I'm like, oh, I'm an animator, I was just on set. And they're like, oh, you must make Pixar movies. No. Like <laughs> I think maybe because uh I guess what you're saying is there's some public perception of, you know, it's it's magic and people not understanding and also, I guess it was very new at the time too. Animation uh, wasn't around as long as well. So was so was 
t- movies and television, I guess. Yeah, 40 years. You know, it had been around for about 35 years. Yeah. And so, so like, um, yeah, I also like what you were saying about, you know, this is work. Essentially, you're creating a product. Um, how is this going to change how you teach your history classes now after you've done all this? Well, you've been doing this research for years and years and years and years. Um, how are you hoping, I guess, it changes your history class, other history classes, uh, et cetera, et cetera? Well, you know, sometimes I take questions from my students about having been in the industry, like if they have any questions about what it's like to work in the industry, because there are a lot of starry eyes out there, just as I was, you know, before I moved into the industry myself. Um, And by the way, working in the industry was great fun. And uh, there are jobs out there that pay what you're worth and pay very well. And there, and there are places that I worked at that, um, that, that were not very fair that scheduled a production so that every week you were expected to come in on a weekend, like every week. Film production or TV production has crunch time and you have to be flexible for crunch time. But if every week is crunch time for the majority of the year, then that's just not, that's not fair for your workers. Um, so knowing, knowing what's expected of you working in, in like film or TV production is, is, I think very important. Um, there's the idea of like putting in your dues. And I think that might be true for most industries um, where you sort of like learn the ropes, do what has to be done to get the job done. Um, so at my very first professional job, like I had, like I said, I know After Effects in my CV and I did. And then they asked me to do stuff in After Effects that I didn't know how to do. So I just, stayed late until I got that done. And I kind of have to, had to learn on the job. Um, and that's sort of what, what it is too. Like you promise to get something done. And if it's within the realm of fairness, you, you do what it takes to get the job done. Uh, and that makes you valuable as a worker and you feel proud to be part of a team. I think that's a big part of it too. Like if you can feel part of a team and feel like you're not being taken for granted of, or, um, you know, taken advantage of, I think that's, there's, there's no feeling like that. I think TV and film production is great like that. So do you think people who read this book are going to get a stronger sense of, um, I, maybe I'm coming to my own conclusions now, but you know, the whole point of the strike was to get uh, better wages, et cetera, for, for the animation artists. Do you think people who read the book are going to have a stronger mentality of, you know, kind of standing up for what's, you know, their working conditions and whatnot, because there's, there's like you were saying, you know, there's a lot of starry eyes. There's a lot of expectation to work for low pay and extra hours in this industry. Um, and there's a lot of people willing to take your place if you demand too much, <laughs> I guess, because it's still seen by a lot of people as like a privilege to be in this. So do you, do you think, you know, now that you've published this book and you're getting the word out that it's going to change some of that perception somehow? I hope this book inspires people to be activists than to fight for what they believe in. Yeah. Um, and so I, who, is, and who is this book specifically for in your eyes? This book is for anyone who likes a good underdog story. Hmm. So not just animators, anybody, really. <laughs> anyone, definitely anyone, anyone. Um, people have read this who are who have no connection with either labor or animation. Who have who who have let me know that they got a lot out of this book? I wrote this book with the intention of having it be a good underdog story, yeah. and I love a good underdog story. I mean, um, I got that. I'm I'm a couple chapters in. I got that sense already. You know, it's it's written in a very like down to earth, easy to read kind of flowy way, and you start off with you know Walt's. I guess it makes sense. You're starting off with Walt. Everybody knows who he is. Kind of his his path. And there's a lot of information I didn't know about where he came from, you know, how he started in pretty much extreme poverty and, you know, all the crazy relationships he's had with his family and, and starting the studio and skipping meals and sleeping in the, in the, what was, it was a storage unit or something he was renting to like, try to make his little, his little comics happen at the time. Like, (laughs) (laughs) so it's, it's already, you know, it's a lot of interesting stuff I didn't know because when you think of Disney, you think of this, like, I don't know, this magical prophet of animation who uh, existed to set up 
entire childhoods basically. And you don't realize that he, uh, which you kind of laid out very interestingly, that he was this like uh, crazy, ambitious, willing to do anything, but also had literally nothing kind of person, I guess. Yeah. At some point, Walt Disney was a teenager. At some point, point, Walt Disney was like an early 20 something. You know, who was he when he was a teenager? I had to figure out who was he when he was a kid? Who was he when he was 21 years old? Yeah. How did you get access to all that information? I mean, like even Disney itself has kind of washed its history where they've erased any picture of him holding a cigarette, for instance, in their in their archives. Like, how did you get? I mean, you had endless access to our Babbitt's uh, information, but how did you get the stuff on Disney? Oh, that wasn't any big deal. That was just a combination of a bunch you of- just, It was just lying around in your backyard. <laughs> oh, I have a lot of, I, I have a lot of books on my bookshelf about Walt Disney. Gotcha. Um, and his, like his history, those came from two, two books uh, specifically. Uh, one, the, one is the biography by Neil Gabler. Hmm. And the other one is the biography by Michael Barrier. So nine years into writing <laughs> this, my book, knowing that I had to go back and figure out who Walt Disney was and how he got to be who he is, how he developed his political opinions. I literally sat down with those two books in front of me because at least the Gabler book, Neil Gabler sat down with Becky Klein, who's the head of the Disney archives. And he came in for like years, a couple mm-hmm. of years at the desk of the archives as she pulled box and box of of research materials. So he just kind of condensed the actual archives into the book. Hmm. Michael Barrier called from private collections and those private collections, he and his, I guess, friends had been collecting since the seventies, some of which started at the archives originally before the archives was very, you know, tightly secured. So there are some things that the Disney archives would release to researchers in the 70s or 80s that they would not release now. So between these two sources of of research, Gabler's book and Barrier's book, I just sort of like pieced together this story and how, um, yeah. And I think, you know, anyone can do that if you buy two books with a notepad. But I was just like on my commute, on the subway, just like reading these two books and making notes in the margins and trying to figure out like um, who Walt Disney was becoming as he was building his studio. Um, People talk about how like, for instance, uh, Charles Mintz stole Oswald from Walt Disney, you know, often told story. but I wanted to sort of like broaden that picture. So if you zoom out a little bit, for instance, well, Walt Disney has a contract to create a character for Universal Studios. Kind of the way like if, if you have a contract to create a character for Nickelodeon or Nelvana, right? Who owns the character when you're done? You or Nelvana? You or Nickelodeon? So Universal took the, the character and it was kind of a jerk move of of mints to say we're also secretly hiring all your animals uh, animators away that was that was an awful awful move and adds more drama to the story but walt really had no claim to oswald the rabbit um and the stress that mints was putting him under he was a tough negotiator mints was and kind of expected more work for the same amount of money that he was paying Walt, and that was causing Walt to act out and and act with kind of like unrelegated frustration in his workplace. There were no books on like workplace management, no leadership books the way there are now, like all over the place. There are books on how to communicate in the workplace. Back then, Walt was just kind of like flying by the seat of his pants and he was kind of acting out in the workplace and making some of his animators angry with him because he was angry. Yeah this displaced anger at Mince. So Mince kind of like made a nice little bed for himself that way. Like these angry animators were happy to leave Walt because Walt was so hard to deal with, but he was hard to deal with because Mince was stressing him out by not, by telling him to do more work for no extra money and like making him burn the candle at, at both ends. So it like, when you zoom out a little bit, the story gets more and more human. Yeah. 
Um, Interesting. Um, I want, I don't know how much you want to say about the book, but like, can you kind of just take me through like maybe the bullet points of the progression? So you start with Walt's, uh, Walt's past and bring, bringing up and then Art Babbitt's bringing up and then how they get in forces together and then the strike and then et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. There's sort of like a, you know, doodly, doodly, like a flashback period where we flashback to Walt growing up uh, and then like becoming super successful with Mickey Mouse. That even in his day, his peers were amazed at how fast Mickey became a household name. Hmm. Like, like they called him like, like, like a wonder kid. Like Walt Disney was just like a wonder kid and a genius. Like at the time that he, 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 like he tapped into gold, he captured lightning in a bottle at that time and clubs and, 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 uh, merchandise followed shortly thereafter. Um, and Art Babbitt, uh, but like, you know, Walt Disney had a very tough childhood. Art Babbitt, his father had a, an accident, like a, he 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 broke his back, so Art Babbitt became the breadwinner for the family as a teenager, and so he knew a lot about work and work ethic, and um, he was great at graphics. And he uh, joined uh, an animation studio in New York called Terry Tunes, but he knew that the only place that he wanted to work was Disney's, and so he joined in 1932, and that's. And that's where they met. And so Art Babbitt was kind of like a scrappy New Yorker, although he grew up in the Midwest, though, like like Walt Disney did. But like Art Babbitt was kind of a guy who wouldn't take no for an answer. And so Walt gave him a job and very quickly Babbitt climbed the ranks. So within within like two and a half years, Babbitt went from a brand new hire to being like a top animator at Disney. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Back then, I guess you could climb those ranks very quickly. And so he was given some like they realized he was good and he was good because he not only worked at Terry Tunes and had experience, but he was also taking classes all the time. He was taking classes in, in New York at places like the Art Students League or at like uh, the Society of Illustrators. Like he never stopped learning. He just he just wanted to soak it all in. And he was going to museums all the time and, uh, and, and reading all the time and just taking every influence he could in. Like he was totally non-complacent. He was, he was just like thirsty to get better and better. Um, I think if, if you or I or your listeners think about some creative people today, they can think about people like that who just are nonstop, who just need to keep on honing their skill and just getting better and better and That's better. Crazy. Yeah. I guess you would have also seen how the him leaving Disney affected him firsthand from, you know, you got access to his diary and his, his wife, et cetera. D did that kind of come across very heavily, I guess, because of somebody who's constantly striving and elevating their craft to then be, you know, kind of, ousted from the place that they can explore that to the nth degree yeah so much so much he spent so if he joined in 32 and the strike happened in 41 so he got that super the super big role in snow white animating the the wicked queen to animate her in 1936 into 37 so within just like five years he's animating the wicked queen um and he's in his like late 20s at the time um, and he feels he feels proud of it because it's a huge hit, this movie. And then he gets Geppetto for Pinocchio, who, which, again, a project that he's super proud of. He does some terrific sequences in Fantasia. Super proud of that. That's elevating the whole art form. Um, and um, by 1941, I think he sees himself as someone who's like too good to not succeed wherever he goes. So he mm. that he has nothing to lose. So the, when the strike happens and Disney tries to fire him and he sues Disney for firing him after the strike. And by the way, that court case in which he sued Walt Disney, I found the records of that court case. It's 1500 pages long. It's in an archive in My San Francisco. Goodness. I read the whole darn thing and annotated. You read the whole thing? 1500 I, I had to. Pages? I had to. Well, 
it's something to do when you're like waiting for a flight or stuck in an airport or like, okay. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. It was just, I was thirsty for it. I can't tell you, like, it was not even hard work. Like wow. it was arduous. It was just, I, I mean, I had to, I had to sort of figure out 1940s legalese a little bit, but you're reading courtroom transcripts. It's like reading a, like a fly on the wall script of what every Disney director is saying in wow. 19, in, in the early 1940s about, Walt and about Art Babbitt. And then you read Walt's testimony and you're like, oh, you're like word for word. These are transcripts. You're, these are not summaries. You're reading what actually was spoken in that courtroom. It was, it's really cool. And if any of your listeners want to read those, they're on the DisneyRevolt.com. I posted <laughs> it all there. Oh, for wow. <laughs> yeah. But for your convenience. Um, but after the strike, after putting in all that work, well, he served in the military, World War II, came back, found that life was too toxic at Disney. So he uh, accepted um, a settlement uh, and left, took the money and left, thinking that wherever he would go, he would find success. And he wasn't right about that. He did not find the kind of success that he was hoping to find at Disney. It's partially because like a lot of his Friends who were part of the Disney strike formed UPA, the studio that did Mr. Magoo and all some great shorts, Oscar winning shorts. But then like they were blacklisted during the Red Scare, fear of communism and everything. So that kind of like cut short that studio. Um, and he just found that eventually he wound up doing um, some less than great animation working on like the incredible Mr. Limpet which is about a talking fish played by Don. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I saw and, it as a kid. <laughs> and, uh, and, and voice directing Warner, uh, Hanna-Barbera commercials, like, like Fred Flintstone commercials for, yeah. I guess, vitamins and things like that. And so um, he got really depressed. He got really depressed. Uh, and. Uh, right. Cause he can never go back to Disney anymore. Can never and go back. There's nothing currently on par with what Disney is doing. Yeah, and the stuff that he is getting is like very much, I guess, below his skill level. Yeah, the only studio in the world that he saw doing something close to that, what Disney was doing, was uh, Richard Williams's studio in mm. London, which at the time had had won an Oscar for um, the Christmas Carol. You know, they'd done this great animation about, you know, Ebenezer Scrooge, that whole story. And so Richard Williams found him and brought him over to teach classes in animation in the early 70s. And uh, kind of kept on bringing him back to teach classes year after year after year, not just doing lectures, but assigning homework to the students who have to animate professionally and on top of that do these assignments these wow. students yeah are are um you know seniors in the studio profession now all over in europe in the states um and they say how how arduous it was how grueling it was to, to do your paid work and then do the homework for art babbitt but they did they all did it richard williams knew that this is a living legend who is a wealth of information if only we take advantage of him while he's here and so art babbitt felt recognized for his contribution and he felt like he was a hmm. like a viable member of like animation history and he was treated like the living legend that he was yeah uh, wow that's that's quite the story <laughs> um maybe a question on that you went from animating to then teaching animation. Do you have similar feelings about your own career? Um, well, I went uh, from teaching animation history, I guess. I wanted to uh, draw on paper <laughs> and no one was doing that. I went into animation because I fell in love with like- Hey, it's, it's coming back. Is it now? Yeah, there's a documentary coming out called, I think it's called Hand Drawn about animators who are still, um, Drawing on paper. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's exciting. Yeah, I work with one of them. Her name is Tina Navruski. She's making um, a, a film about 
mermaids. It's all hand drawn. Uh, so you should look her up. But yeah, she she was one of the ones that worked on Cuphead, which, you know, if you're familiar with Cuphead, was all hand drawn animation. So it is making a little bit of a comeback. Yeah. Hand drawn. Yeah, no, there's there's a lot of great hand drawn animation, but it's all it's all on tablets, you know, right? It's it's all on Cintiqs and stuff, and you know, I mean, that's fine. I get it. It's it's easier now, and I'm not I'm not going to be like an old timey fool who says that it has to be on paper or 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 it doesn't. Hey, count. there are there are like like I said, like Tina, she's animating on paper still. <laughs> I love it. There are people who are it. doing it. Kudos, kudos to Tina. I love it. Uh, there's just something tangible about it, but yeah. I got into animation because I saw a little mermaid when I was a kid and I was like, Oh my God, they're doing it. They captured it. They were, they're able to, to bring the magic back. And then by the time I got into the industry, um, I guess like I, I worked on shows like, uh, little Einstein's and wonder pets. And, uh, and I worked on animation for Saturday night live and my last project was doing storyboard work for the movie epic produced by blue sky um and more than just um i guess paper versus digital or paper versus tablet um i think what i always wanted to do was like recapture the magic of the golden age of like what it was like with not just wisecracking zany people you know, pulling pranks on each other, which was so cool to read about. Um, but like the idea of like discovering new strategies, figuring out the techniques as they were going, like these were the people who invented animation techniques, you know, these people who discovered squash and stretch and anticipation and things like that, you know, these eureka moments, it just sounded so cool. So I realized I have to go in a time machine. So writing this book is that time machine. Oh, I wrote wow, that's really cool. Yeah, so people can relive that time. That's amazing. Um, I'm the opposite of you with the hand drawn. I, I specifically didn't want to get into animation if I had to hand draw. <laughs> I was like tablet or nothing. But it's. I think that's really cool that you have time machined yourself into that golden age and you got to kind of live out exactly, literally word for word, what was happening at the time through you know the diary and the transcripts and et cetera, et cetera. That's really really cool. So tell me, you know, uh, the book. How's how's the promotion been going? I, I I mean, like you've gotten to speak at some really cool places. You've gotten some really cool people to give you quotes, like Pete Doctor. Uh, how's it going? <laughs> <laughs> Pete, Doc, Pete, Pete Doctor, uh, yeah, he was kind enough to invite me over to Pixar. Wow! To... Did you just call him up like you did <laughs> your other connections? Yeah, one eight hundred Doctor. That's his one eight hundred Doctor. Um. In my, in my, I guess starting with the blog in my research, I found myself before I even like landed an agent, but I'm like two or three years into the research of this book, working with Barbara Babbitt. I started the blog and um, I got the attention of other like-minded people, other like-minded Disney historians, and they connected me with others and mm. all over, all over the world. Wow. And we kind of like vetted each other, know that we're the real deal, not just casual fans, but people who like dig deep um, and fans. Like we're all fans. We're not out here to detract Walt or the company. We are pro company. We are pro Walt and we are historians. So um, uh, I still, I still believe in the company. And um, I think that like John Culhane put it best when he believes that like Disney is, it has created an, an emblem of, of ultimate optimism that has made the world a better place. So connecting with these other Disney historians has really helped broaden my reach for research and helped me connect with people like Pete Doctor or Leonard Malton um, and show these people that like, I have stuff that can help you with some of your projects. Like Pete mm -hmm. is doing a project on the Disney directors, people like Wilfred Jackson and Dave Hand and these these directors of the films and the shorts of the of the Disney Golden Age and Silver Age. So I was able to help him with some of his research. So when he invited me over to Pixar, I did a presentation and showed some like never before seen uh, video and audio and photos uh, and sort of like created 
try to, for the audience of Pixar artists, uh, bring this to life, bring this yeah. golden age and this era to life, just as it does for me. Try to replicate that that I get for for everyone else. So if anyone's listening or watching this and you want to invite me over to do a presentation, see the Pixar presentation, same presentation I did for the uh, Cartoon Art Museum in San Francisco or um, Drexel University in Philadelphia, uh, uh, Harvard and Boston, um, you know where to find me. Contact me through Gary, I guess. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, hundred percent. I'm just maybe, maybe as we're kind of wrapping up, um, one final question from my end is where do you go from here? You know, like you got to dive into a dream project and now it's been realized and you're, you're like, the book is out. Where do you go from here? Uh, I have a book that's been on pause with Disney for a few years called uh, Disney Afternoon, The Making of a Television Renaissance. Ah. Yes. So we started that in 2018 and into 2019. And then uh, COVID put a pause on that and it kept delaying the publication date. So now the publication date is scheduled to be September 2024. Wow. Okay. So, yeah. So there's there's like a round or two of edits that need to be done, but all the research and most of the writing, well, all the writing minus some edits are done for that book. Um, and fans can't wait. And I can't wait to present it to fans. And, nice. and once we're ready to move forward with that, you know, I'm going to be in that trench all in. So it's books from here on out. <laughs> Disney that, books. <laughs> well, um, animation books. I love animation all books. the untold stories of yeah. animation. And I think there, there are quite a few out there. And I, so, sorry, I was just saying that's, that's really cool. You know, I, there's a lot of history, especially in Disney, that I don't know about that I'm specifically excited to read about in your in your book. Because, you know, I, I had animation cl history class, but things are so glossed over because you're trying to hit animation in North America and Japan and India and go through the years and blah, blah, blah. And Canada here where we're from. So not, a, not, not enough was touched on kind of that whole strike and everything. So I'm excited about that. Are there any topics or things that we didn't talk about that you wanted to share still? Um, well, I'm not sure uh, if your listeners are interested in like my experience as an animator or animation artist, which started in like, 2005 and ended uh around 2015 give or take mm. um i just kind of phased it out because i realized it wasn't making me happy um what at what point did you because it takes a lot of effort to get into animation and specifically at what point did you realize did you have a turning point where you're like i'm not happy anymore and i realized this or was it the slow slow progression can you can you share that well um the way I got into the industry, I always knew I wanted to be an animator. And so I, I transferred to NYU film school because I wanted to study animation. I, I knew I did not want to go out West. I just did not want to go in that region. LA did not want to deal with that. So NYU was the best school in the East coast for animation. So I transferred there and uh, I worked hard to make a student film that got in festivals and that led me to my first job for Little Einstein's at Curious Pictures, which was a Disney cartoon show for Disney uh, Playhouse Disney um, and, and a project I could be really proud of. Uh, and that led to a, one high profile job after another and some low profile jobs. And it seems like the low profile jobs pay better than the high profile jobs. So kind of like, you know, interweave those two um, and, uh, then eventually like I found that, that putting all my artistic oomph into my work didn't leave anything left for me at the end of the day. Hmm. And I was fascinated by the idea that animation artists who are in the industry for a long time have their own creative projects. I was like, I can't even fathom that. How, like, like animators have, are, are like working on a documentary at home or they're working on sculptures at home, you know? And I guess I was, I was writing like on my own, but that wasn't fulfilling me in like a deep personal way. And, and, uh, and I realized that if I wanted to feel fulfilled and complete, 
like um, working as a professional animator wasn't going to do it. And I sort of had that, ex that, that, that experience that the character in, in the movie soul has at the end when he plays with the jazz singer or excuse me, the jazz saxophonist, he plays with his hero and he's like, I always dreamed of playing with you. What do we do now? And, he, and she's like, we show up tomorrow and we do the same thing. He's like, really? And he realizes that, that like that, that being alive is more than just doing that professional dream. It's about sitting on the curb and watching the leaves fall. It's about like smelling the roses. Um, and that was the experience that I had. I was like, I want that again. So in order to sort of like preserve my creative soul, uh, I had to leave the industry and yeah. yeah, but I would still have it sort of on the side as a writer and a geek and a fan and still get a chance to talk to everyone. Really, that kind of got me in trouble when I was working in the field. I would talk to everyone and they were like, Jake, stay in your lane, man. Everyone's getting their work done. This is work time. Stay in your lane. But I, I just was such a curious fan of what everyone was doing. And as a writer or reporter, you get to do that. So <laughs> I'm staying in, I'm, I'm keeping that in my life. If, it, if, if not the, the actual production stuff. And I'm really happy with that. Nice. It sounds like you had a similar realization with your agent, even when you were doing the same thing over and over again, and it wasn't working and you switched up mindset to reach a better place and it's working out. So does it, does it feel like, you know, you're in a good place now with what you're doing with, you know, teaching animation and writing these books on the side? Is this kind of what you aspired where you're like living life and smelling the roses and watching the leaves type of thing. <laughs> yeah. And, and by the way, that first agent, uh, she's totally fine. Like she was, yeah. she wasn't, she, she's totally fine. We ended on very good terms. Um, it was, it was just not, not a great match. That's all. Um, and, and she wasn't at all surprised when, when I said, you know, this isn't working out. Maybe we should just like part ways. She wasn't at all surprised. And then when, when I found my, my current agent, it took like no time to find a publisher, like no time. Um, and I well, was you, really knew what, you knew what you were looking for in that sense, but how do you, how do you feel now with, you know, the lifestyle that you've created for yourself where you're still dabbling in animation, talking to the people you want and working on these creative projects on the side, is this kind of what you envisioned for yourself? Yeah. Yeah. So doing this, like, these are all like side gigs. Um, yeah. And I like having creativity as my side gig. Um, I can't imagine it any other way. Totally. And I, I like that you, you know, kind of were okay with saying that to yourself. Because I know I know people who are in the industry and they feel like they can only be in the industry because they've been in the industry and it's kind of the only thing they know, but they don't really enjoy it that much. Um, I don't know if it's a similar vibe of what, how you experience it, but like, you know, they stay because... They don't know what else to do, but it's, they know it's not for them at the same time. So I think it's I think it's brave of you to to like kind of admit that to yourself and say, you know, I've worked so hard to get here, but even all that work to get here, my learning was that it's not for me, and I'm gonna switch up gears a little bit. So I think that's I think that's important and and courageous of you at the same time. Well, thanks, Harry. There's a great book called Who Moved My Cheese. <laughs> what? Who moved my cheese? Yeah. Yeah. It's a very easy read. Who moved it my cheese? It sounds like one. Who moved? Who moved? You're looking it up right now? Yeah. A book by Spencer Johnson. Who moved my cheese? And I had read that book and I was like, oh, my, someone has moved my cheese. So the idea is that like rats in a maze will go to where you put the cheese. They'll learn where you put the cheese and they'll go the same route once they figure it out. But if you move the cheese, they're not going to stay there and expect the cheese to come back. They're going to find a new route. Oh. So I and and humans humans um we are we are uh, not as uh flexible as mice sometimes and humans will stick in the same path expecting yeah the the reward that they've stopped getting for a while so instead of waiting for the satisfaction that i didn't see coming i decided to go down a different path well, I think it still takes a lot of guts to do that. A lot of people, even in the business world, I remember working in offices and I'm sitting beside somebody who's been there for, I don't know, they're close to retirement, but they do not like what they do. And they're <laughs> always complaining. And I feel like you only end up in that place because uh, I guess you're expecting the cheese to come to you after all this time. And it's not. 
So right. I'm definitely going to check out this book. On Amazon, it has 23,000 reviews and a 4.6 star rating out of five. So <laughs> it's got its own Wikipedia page. Yeah. I'm probably going to have to check this out. <laughs> so it's, it's, super, it's a super popular book. I've it's never like, heard of it somehow. So, yeah. oh. All right. Well, uh, Jake, is there anything else that you wanted to share as we're wrapping up? Um, I'll say, um, uh, you know, John Colhane gave uh, advice to his class that I guess I'll, I'll share here because you said that you have a lot of people who who are maybe who are students who are trying to choose the next step for them. You, yeah. you, just like you, you carved out a new path for your cheese. That's true. That's true. Oh, <laughs> my cheese. So John, John Colhane, when he was 18, he met Walt Disney. This is in the fifties. And he asked Walt, how do I become great at what I want to do? Just like you became great. And, and Walt said, well, what do you want to do? And John said, well, I want to be a writer. And he said, well, start out writing for your local community and just keep widening your circle. Just keep widening your circle. And that's how, that's exactly what Walt did as a filmmaker. He made films just for his, his, his town, Kansas city. And then he just started making films for like the wider communities, not for theaters, but wider communities. And then eventually for theatrical release and that built his studio. So John Colhane did the same thing. He became a, he wrote for his college paper, ended up spinning that to a, a, a career for magazines, writing for Newsweek, uh, and writing some of the best books on animation there, there are. And I just love that advice. Just start out small, local, and just keep widening your circle. And I think you can't lose. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a great, especially because especially because of social media making people myself included want to get a huge audience immediately but uh i think starting small and building your way up is exactly how to do it so yeah anyways uh you know jake it's been a super great chat i love picking your brain about everything you know animation history when it comes to disney and the strike and art babbitt i think it's super super incredible that you got that all that access to art babbitt's files it sounds so interesting and just hearing you talk about how it you know how excited you are talking about it seems like uh i don't know i'm just I'm, i like the energy <laughs> thanks thanks yeah, thanks so, for having me on it's been so much fun of course and if you're listening and you want to check out the disney revolt which is the book we were talking about you can go to the disneyrevolt.com or you can check out jake's website which is jakefriedman.com and i'll include oh, both those. Oh. sorry jake, jake s friedman jake s friedman yes yeah 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 i my, my name is way too common i need the middle initial jake be. s friedman or jake's friedman i guess jake's com. Friedman. <laughs> i'll include both those links in the description of this chat and that's all for now so thank you so much for listening okay bye The music for this podcast was composed by Willem Mendo and the graphics by Luhan Wang. I encourage you to look them up if you've enjoyed their work.